Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 6th of March 2023 and this is episode 291. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Michael Taylor about his new book that explores the career of Brigadier General Frank Crozier and his command of the 119th Brigade during the Great War. This book is published by Helion. Mike spoke to me from his home near Perth in Scotland. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hello, Tom. Glad to be here. Um, Yes, I am a semi-retired museum uh, curator. Uh, My original degree was in geology. Uh, I've always been interested in military history. I was aware of my grandfather's service in the Great War. Um, although he died when I was very small, I never asked him anything. Um, I remember watching the BBC Great War series in the 60s. Uh, I moved on to lots of other periods of history. I uh, was very involved in 17th century history for a while and eventually came back to the Great War after a visit to the Western Front in 2000. Uh, Since then, uh, followed up my original degree with an MA in Birmingham and I followed that up with a PhD which looked at the 119th Infantry Brigade but it was my grandfather's service that started me searching and interestingly enough it I knew absolutely nothing about his service uh, and it was the Western Front Association pension records that finally broke that particular mystery open so that's how I got here. So like all of us, you started out with an interest and ended up joining the cult that is the Western Front Association. Um, Indeed. Somewhere you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Which I, know, <laughs> I know to my cost. Um, right. So let's let's um, get into the meat of the subject. Now, we're going to talk about Frank Crozier and his uh, time as the brigade commander of 119th Brigade. Can we start by looking at who Frank Crozier was his pre-war life and why he's so well known well how long have you got um uh, i should say straight away that if people want to find out more about crozier's background there's a very good and indeed the only um biography of crozier um by charles messenger and i think you may have actually interviewed charles on dispatches some time ago about that about that book but that would give um a lot of background but crozier um is a very controversial character um he was born into a military family in 1879 he wanted to follow his father into the regular army he was too short he was only five foot four i think it was half an inch below the requirement for an officer he eventually got in via the militia he went off to be a tea planter he Uh, joined Thornycroft's Mounted Infantry during the Boer War. And from there, with um, the help of Alec Thornycroft uh, and indeed Crozier's mother, 
who was friends not only with Thornycroft, but uh, apparently um, with some of the high Hidians, as we'd say in Scotland. Um, uh, he was commissioned into the Manchester Regiment and he was with them until uh, 1901, uh, acting in a mounted infantry role. Uh, he then uh, bailed out of the Boer War, thinking it was a bit quiet, uh, halfway through, and went to um, serve with the West African Field Force. He came back with that. He went into the Special Reserve. Um, he acted as a, an officer with the militia. He passed dud checks. He had to resign his commission. He went to Canada. And we haven't even got to the First World War yet. Uh, he came back. He um, eventually found a niche with the Ulster Volunteer Force in uh, Belfast. He was a captain in that paramilitary uh, organisation. And when war broke out, he uh, was commissioned into the 9th Royal Irish Rifles. He eventually became the CO in January 1916. He was at uh, Tietval on the Somme, uh, and from there he was promoted uh, up to Brigadier General and took over the brigade. His fame, if you want to call it that, really comes from his own books, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about that later. But he he um, had a controversial career post-war, not with the regular army, they wouldn't have him. Uh, but uh, he went to Lithuania as Inspector General of the Army for uh, less than a year, a bit of a disaster. He became the Commandant of the Auxiliary Division of the Royal Irish Constabulary, resigned in February of 21, hit the headlines, name mentioned in Parliament, definitely persona non grata with the establishment. He became bankrupt again. He turned to writing. Um, and he, the main source for Crozier has been his own books. And that's been one of the problems and why it's been so difficult to actually put a, a rounder picture together. Um, but yes, Frank Crozier is, is, is infamous. He talks in his books. Um, he describes an execution, a shot at dawn that he was involved in. He describes shooting uh, at least one of his own men, maybe two. Um, all that, that's not proven by any means. It might just be a literary device. Um, uh, and he, he just, he became really quite, as Republic, uh, because of the publication of those books, he became quite um, infamous. Uh, and then he had the good, good sense to actually um, die when his last book was published. And immediately all the furore died down. But his reputation as being a controversial figure was well and truly emplaced by the time we got to the revival of interest in the First World War. So why write a book about his command, 119th Brigade, during the war? Um, several reasons, really. I started off um, by wanting to examine Crozier in more detail. Um, and I crossed paths with Charles Messenger just as I was starting my thesis research and just as he was starting his book, which was obviously going to be finished well before my thesis. And I actually changed tack slightly 
uh, instead of looking at Crozier in the round, so to speak, I really decided to look at his command of the brigade. And the brigade itself was so little known and quite unusual that I decided that that was going to be the focus of my of my research. So now we have the story of the brigade from its inception um, to its way, its various brigadiers. There were three before Crozier. Um, and uh, one author said, well, if the brigade had four brigadiers, it obviously wasn't very good. But actually, Crozier was there for more than two years. And there were only 27 brigadiers in the whole of the BEF that actually had that uh, level of service at brigade level. Um, so there was a lot to find out. It's been quite a journey. Um, and I, hopefully what we have at the end of it is uh, not only the brigade in its proper place in the history of the Great War, but Crozier's role as a brigadier general, um, which has rather been eclipsed by his reputation and by a focus on what happened with the 9th Royal Irish Rifles um, at Thiepval uh, in, uh, in 1916. So let's have a look at the 119th Brigade. Can you give us um, a bit of background about its formation? What battalion, what battalions comprised it? What division it was part of and what operations it had participated in before Crozier took over command in late 1916? Uh, OK, the, the makeup of the brigade in its original form was really quite interesting. Um, four battalions in the original brigade. Um, the 17th and 18th Welsh, the 19th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and the 12th South Wales Borderers. Um, these men were Bantams. Uh, the story of the Bantams is is well known, and I won't I won't recount it here. But most of that history is derived from the Bantams of 35th Division, which is an entirely Bantam formation. The Bantams, as you know, were small men between five feet and five feet three, although. Some of them were definitely shorter than that. Um, and I think that the military secretary's office was having a bit of a joke when they put Crozier in charge of a Bantam brigade when he was only five foot four himself. Um, so these men were Bantams, uh, predominantly Welsh, predominantly labouring men, as you would expect. The um, I looked at the social makeup of the brigade and what their occupations were, um, partly prompted by a question from Peter Simpkins, who said, well, were these men short, stocky Welsh miners? And actually, the short answer is yes. Uh, a lot of them, the majority, actually were. Um, so we had those four battalions in the original incarnation of the brigade. When you get to the reorganisations of February 1918, only one of those battalions, the 18th Welsh, remains. The others are split up. Uh, and... Uh, the 21st Middlesex and the 13th East Surrey are moved in from the two other brigades of 40th Division, which is where um, this particular brigade sat. Um, and that incarnation was badly mauled in March and April in the German Spring Offensives. It was about to be completely disbanded, but was reorganised with um, what, what were called B-class men uh, in June of 1918, uh, and the division became active again, uh, and um, was in the in the line right up until uh, the armistice. 
Um, so those were the those were the uh, battalions. Sorry, I didn't mention the last um, the last three battalions of the B men. They were the 12th North Staffords, the 13th East Lancs, and the 13th Royal Inner Skilling Fusiliers. Although again, looking at the geographical origins of the men, almost none of them had any geographical affiliation with those particular battalions. <clears throat> uh, what did they do? Well, 40th Division um, was the last of the Kitchener divisions to come out to France. Uh, it got there in the beginning of June 1916, um, and it was moved into the loose sector, which was relatively quiet. It got its experience there, and it basically stayed there uh, until October of 1916, just before Crozier arrived in command. Uh, and it sat there. Um, and it, the division became known as the Forgotten 40th. Uh, they did some trench raiding. They got raided. They sat under constant mine and warfare um, bombardment. Uh, they lost some good officers. They lost Colonel Wilkie, who was the commander of the 17th Welsh. Um, they lost a guy called Harry Pritchard, who was a captain in the... Uh, uh, in the South Wales Borderers, uh, in a trench raid. Um, he was a Welsh rugby international. Um, and I think actually that over that rather inert summer, um, the men got more and more fed up. Um, there's just hints of that, really. But I think that when they came out of that sector, um, their morale was, was relatively low, although their casualties had not been all that great. It was still really the same division that had come out to France and would remain so actually in, well into 1917. Um, so really, they, they'd not done very much. And one of the reasons, one of the things I explored was, well, why? Why, why weren't they used? They never went to the Somme, uh, for example, and, and divisions were needed. Um, and it seems to be directly related to the performance of 35th Division, the Bantam Division. Um, which didn't do very well, not necessarily its fault. It was used in bits and pieces, in bitty operations that shouldn't have happened. But the Bantams got a reputation, and it seems that that was the reason they weren't sent south. And it was possibly the reason why Frank Crozier, a, a, an energetic and comparatively young brigadier general, was sent to to G up, uh, G up the brigade. I should say the divisional commander at this stage was um, Harold Ruggles Bryce, um, a perfectly capable soldier, um, had been wounded badly at uh, First Eep and then been given the division uh, as it was being formed in the middle of 1915. But Crozier arrived and I think his role was, and he used the word electrify, and he uses that word a lot. Uh, I think that's what he was there to do. He was there to give them a kick up the bum and um, get them working. So that leads us neatly onto Crozier arriving at the 119th um, Brigade. So what sort of problems did Crozier believe he faced in the brigade and what measures did he take to rectify the problems that he identified? <laughs> um, he he, he threw, threw, his, threw his weight about um, uh, as much as he could, I think. Um, but he, when he arrived, there was a particular issue, and I think it's a manifestation of that summer of discontent in the loose trenches. Um, the, the 
the whole division was marched south away from the loose sector um, to undertake a, a period of training. And Crozier actually joined them halfway along that that march, just after there'd been um, two incidents of collective indiscipline in the 12th South Wales borderers. Um, one uh, A company uh, had a beef with the landlord of the billets uh, that they were staying in, and they got their revenge by stealing 52 bottles of wine, always a target for a British soldier, alcohol. But um, uh, the, um, the whole company was actually taken out of um, its billets in the town where they were staying or the village where they were staying and put into an isolated farm a couple of miles away, uh, I think, as a, as a punishment. But a separate incident with actually men from D Company involve refusing an order to actually parade uh, to uh, parade for defaulters parade. And so 19 men were actually um, court martialed. Uh, and uh, it, it was basically mutiny, although it, it actually the charge was actually uh, disobeying an order. And Crozier arrived just as the verdict, just as the court martial was taking place. Um, it, it's it's quite interesting. Um, we can identify the participants that were court martialed, or at least all but two, I think. And it's clear that the men had uh, uh, quite a number of them had uh, roughly consecutive um, service numbers, and probably enlisted together at the same place, likely to be Mexborough in uh, in Yorkshire. Um, so these weren't Welshmen in the South Wales. Uh, and so there's likely to be a group of them who knew each other, and this probably helped to get this group disobedience. Uh, two were identified as ringleaders. Uh, one was sentenced to seven years penal servitude, one for two years hard labour. Um, the rest, I think, were uh, 18 months. But Crozier actually approved the verdict of the of the court martial, his first uh, disciplinary act, I think. Um, it was passed up. Uh, the men were handed over to the Provost Marshal of 40th Division, and then the divisional commander stepped in, and he actually um, commuted the sentences. The, the highest one, I think, was 18 months hard labour, and the rest were on field punishment number one for three months, um, which, given what happened to the brigade after that, probably didn't happen. Um, but the brigade commander also addressed the men, sorry, the uh, divisional commander addressed the men and made it quite clear that this should not happen again, that they run the risk of being shot by their own men, in other words, court-martialed and executed, if this happened again. And interestingly, um, the following year in 1917, immediately after this, the court-martial rate for the South Wales borderers is the least uh, in the brigade. And in fact, overall, there weren't that many court-martials. Um, I, I won't do the figures now, and tables are very boring to read, but they're, they are available if people want to to look at it. And it's quite interesting to compare those figures with other available figures, like um, the the uh, figures that are in Tim Bowman's, uh, Timothy Bowman's um, uh, Irish regiments in the Great War, uh, and just see how disciplinary record compares. Uh, and actually, it wasn't, it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Um, it's interesting that the, um, the, the Welsh seem to have been slightly less um, 
what's the word, controllable. Um, their insubordination rate is higher than those of the Irish regiments, but their drunkenness rate is actually much less. So it's quite interesting to compare these. What it does show actually is that the, 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 the discipline across different formations was, it's difficult to compare like with like. I think that officers acted in different ways within the rules. Um, so someone who's a harsh disciplinarian might have a higher and, and therefore has better discipline may actually have a higher court martial rate than someone who just says, oh, well, let's not bother putting it through the system. I'll deal with this quietly. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so so Kruzzi had to deal with that. That was his, his first thing. Some of his subordinates grumble on his arrival that he's, uh, he's interfering, he's uh, issuing orders um, that um, simply can't be carried through. There was a thing about digging a trench uh in the rancor sector the weather was appalling the ground was frozen and when it wasn't frozen it was sopping wet um and it was really a waste of a waste of time and effort some of his subordinates actually write that in their memoirs and or their accounts and although there are actually very few of those um so one's forced back onto the official records and um and and always remember that some of these memoirs have been written after Crozier published his own books in retrospect. And I think some of them were coloured by that and the reputation that he'd gained by then. Um, but you either like Crozier, well, you could either live with Crozier or you could d d dislike him. And obviously some of his subordinates actually liked him. Uh, Captain Montgomery, who, he'd, um, who was one of his uh, company commanders in the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles, obviously thought a lot of him and, and actually tried to get transferred to work with him. Uh, but that wasn't, uh, it never did, it never did happen. Uh, and there are others, um, uh, Anthony Muirhead, who was his brigade major latterly, uh, obviously worked with Crozier in Lithuania, for example. Um, and uh, the commander of the 17th Welsh, Richard Andrews, um, after he was wounded at Ball on Wood, came back six months later to the brigade and worked with Crozier again, was his friend. It was even in business with him after the after the war. Uh, and um, so, yeah, some people people either liked him or, or well, I wouldn't say loathed him, but uh, yeah, found, found him hard to uh, to work with. What, I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about his style of leadership. How did he sort of treat his brigade, uh, sorry, his battalion commanders and their company commanders? Yeah, interesting. Um, he claims uh, in his own books that um, he was told that the brigade was the bad, the, the worst in the division out of the three. Um, the other two were the 120th and 121st. Um, that his was the worst. Uh, and he said that he got there and he had to fire you know, X number of COs, a couple of adjutants, a brigade major, the the, the several medical officers, whatever. Um, now, I've looked for evidence of that, and yeah, there's a little, there's a bit of a churn of in 1917 of um, battalion commanders, <clears throat> and again in 1918, latterly. But I don't think he had the freedom of action when it came to firing people that he claims to have had. Um, and he's telling stories in his books as well. One particular officer, he he sort of hints wasn't there for very long, and he just sent him back. He was he was useless. In fact, look at the war diaries. He was there for six months. 
Um, so what Crozier claims in his written works is not necessarily what what happened, but certainly he got rid of people where he could if he felt that they were they were inefficient. He he got training onto onto the if you actually look at the war diaries, other than for example a couple of days in the in the bombing school before they go into the trenches uh, in 1916 for the first time, there's really no mention of training right up until the end of uh, the end of 1916, Crozier's arrival, and it, it actually um, starts to take off after that. Now, it, it, it's not just Crozier. I think it's happening in the division generally and probably across the British Army in 1917, things get really organised. Um, but he was he was a good, I think he was 16 years younger than the previous um, brigade commander who'd only been there for a few months. Uh, and he constantly uses the word electrify. And I think it, it's all about energising people to get things done. Um, of course, the key thing is actually getting into 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 action. And the first proper, as you might say, offensive action for the brigade doesn't happen until April of 1917. Um, and of course, the context the context for that is actually quite different than it would have been in 1916 and certainly in 1915. And, and the division benefited, I think, a little in in coming in later uh, and going into action later. Um, because everything around them, the whole context, was more organised. So sometimes it's difficult to tell whether the improvements were actually down to Crozier or whether it was something contextual across the the whole of the BEF. Um, But he certainly seems to have got things done when they did go into action at, uh, um, by pronunciation, I always struggle with this one, Ville Puich. Near uh, Guzacor, um, they took their objectives. Um, there were there were some minor cockups and things like artillery falling short, people going slightly adrift in the dark. Um, but uh, they did what they were asked to do. D- Douglas Haig said, "Oh well, that's fine." Uh, but they were up against a, a fairly weak division that wouldn't stand. Actually, that's not true. Um, the division that they were up against, up against was relatively new but it was also quite good um if you look at the account of german divisions in war um it, it wasn't a pushover but they did quite well at uh, at Ville Puch, uh and then they moved into the into the line uh, opposite the hindenburg line and they were there through the summer of 17 uh and i suppose their greatest test and the one that they're m- most famous for uh, is actually at uh, ball on wood uh, Combray between the 23rd and the 26th of November. They were in reserve when Combray started. Um, they were tasked with taking Ball on Wood. They took Ball on Wood and held it for three days um, against German counterattacks. They handed it over uh, on the 26th, uh, having suffered um, almost 1,500 casualties in the brigade. If the battalions went into the line with 500 men each, which is um, what they were in an earlier order that indicates that they were going to fight with 500 men in the line, um, they had uh, 50% casualties, easily 50% and sometimes more. And the interesting thing is that um, immediately after that, because of the German counterattack at Cambrai, they, they didn't have a rest. They had a few days. They had to go back into the line near Bullecourt um, to uh, let another division go 
that hadn't suffered at Cumbria um, to uh, to go back and face the uh, face the counterattack. So they didn't get a rest. Then you get the uh, reorganisation of, of February 18, the disbandment of the original battalions, bar one. Crozier has to deal with that and the reorganisation of that. They go into the line um, not far around uh, Irvier and Murray. Um, uh, again, they're in reserve to start with. They get pushed in against the German uh, spring offensive in that area. Uh, they do quite well. They hold on. Um, they actually hold that ground. Uh, again, they suffer suffer casualties. Um, they're taken out. They're given a rest. They're given a rest in an area up on the River Lease, which just happens to be slap bang in front of the next German attack uh, on April the 9th. And they get very badly mauled uh, on the Lease. Uh, casualties up to Boulogne levels. Um, and the brigade is very weak when it comes out uh, and um, is threatened with disbandment. But again, it's put back together again with these so-called B-men and uh, Crozier has to deal with that. And there are some reports on Crozier. He actually applied for promotions. He was trying to get hold of, get a division. Uh, he was, and then latterly, of course, he was trying to get employment as the armistice loomed in the army. Uh, and there are reports on him by his uh, divisional commanders, um, his current divisional commander and his previous divisional commander. Uh, and they say that he's an energetic, efficient, good battlefield commander. Uh, and that seems to have been his strength. But if you look at the previous work about Crozier, you won't you won't find that that written down. He's still the guy who shot his own men and was a, a, a difficult character to deal with. And how, I'm just wondering, sort of coming to the conclusion, how have historians viewed his command of the 119th Brigade and how do you rate his command of the 119th Brigade in, in, Brigade in terms of discipline, morale and operational effectiveness? OK, I think given the, the context of where 40th Division was actually used, and of course that wasn't down to Crozier, um, my best single word, I think, to sum him up would be competent. You know, I don't think he was a great commander in that sense, but he certainly wasn't a bad one. As for what other people think, well, to be honest, I don't think they have thought. Um, a lot of the work that works that mention Crozier focus on those early days, his time with the Ulster Division. Um, uh, hardly anything looks at his later uh, career. Um, uh, really, just Charles Messenger's um, biography, uh, Broken Sword. Uh, so. They've really just just ignored it, and, and there's this. If, if I've done anything to um, counterbalance this this focus on the the earlier activities um, and his time with the Ninth Royal Irish Rifle, and brought a focus onto the the two years that he spent with the brigade, then you know I think that's a that's a good job. And my final question is, where can people get the book from? Ah, from all, from all good booksellers, Tom. Um, it's actually published by Helion. I think you can get it di direct from them. Uh, it's been out a couple of months now. Uh, but, um, and I don't know what offers are currently on, but if you look up Helion on their website. You'll... Michael, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
The theme music for this podcast was George Bothworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.